Welcome to Heroes of Marketing Cloud, the show where I interview experts in Salesforce Marketing Cloud. My name is Anthony. I'm the CEO at Deselect. And today I'll be speaking with Timo Kovala. Timo is a Salesforce Marketing Cloud architect at Capgemini. And together we discuss such things as the role of AI, how to deal with change management, and then one of uh, Timo's favorite subjects, uh, marketing attribution. So take a seat, relax. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks, Anthony. Happy to be here. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to have you. It's been a, a while. I had a fellow European, I think, on the show. <laughs> yeah, it's. I've, I've noticed it as well that the uh, Salesforce uh, ecosystem can be a bit sort of America or Anglo-centric. So it's nice to uh, be part of the sort of wider audience, so to speak. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And, and we do love to mix it up. I guess recently a lot of um a lot of participants to to the show were uh also based in the us because i'm based in the us these days but um it was great to run into you at uh at dreamforce um and maybe for our for our guests on the show today can you tell us a bit about your background and what you currently do at capgemini yeah so currently i'm a marketing architect at uh, capgemini uh, meaning that I basically work with clients, try to help them build or design a roadmap forward in, in data-driven data marketing and marketing and sales alignment. But uh, before my time in Capgemini, uh, I worked in a Salesforce consultancy. And before that, I worked in marketing consulting. Uh, and... Prior to that, I was in-house. So I have both sort of in-house and consulting background. Yeah. So um, you you made the, um, the switch as well from working, quote unquote, within the industry, as you said, in-house mm -hmm. to, to consultancy. What was that like? I mean, really, I would say, and, and that that's what I sort of emphasize. I've been a hiring manager before, actually, my current role. So... I basically hired all uh, my sort of teammates from in-house background. And at least like in marketing, I see like that's the way to go. You get the best professionals. And this is no like disrespect to people who have been sort of fully born and bred consultants. But I myself prefer having this sort of practical expertise because that's the one thing that you cannot sort of train uh, by going to trainings and, and doing consultancy work. You get the perspective of being in-house and that may, makes you sort of positioned in a special way to uh, accommodate the customer and go to their shoes. And you can sort of explain like, this is how I would do it. And this is what we were struggling with when I was in your shoes and so on. So, yeah, I think uh, that definitely applies to myself as well, that uh, it's been a sort of a not so secret, secret weapon of mine. So uh, clients really like when you sort of give uh, real life examples and sort of try to go to their shoes yeah oh i can totally relate to that in fact i've often observed in the ecosystem that amongst quote-unquote system integrators there are sometimes those who are pure consultancies and they're really good at it integration projects and then there are a number of marketing agencies who know all about campaigns but uh I wouldn't let them do an implementation, frankly. Mm. Um, it is rare to see that mix. And I think one of the things I like about <coughs> partnering with Capgemini too is that um, Capgemini has this mix of practical hands-on uh, experience as marketers within their team, but they also have the more um, typical consulting IT integration background so they can actually get the system up and running in a way that has a good architecture uh, yeah. there it is the word um, but but then also practically enough so that marketers can get campaigns out of the door um, very easily yeah definitely um about um, expertise I also happen to notice on your LinkedIn profile that you are now a top marketing analytics voice it's this little <laughs> icon you got now so I <laughs> I work a lot on, on LinkedIn as well. People uh, yeah. who follow the show will have, definitely have me see spam a lot there. Um, so can you tell us a bit about that? Like just, just first of all, like what does that mean? And um, how can someone become a top voice on LinkedIn? 
Yeah, I mean that was a surprise to myself as well. It's it's a, it's I guess it's a recent addition. LinkedIn used to have these sort of influencer uh, sort of tags, but those were sort of reserved to these like um, how would I say like real real influencers who have like fifty thousand followers and uh, write for uh, I don't know Forbes or uh, I don't know Bloomberg and and stuff like that. So I it's it's nice that they added this sort of midway sort of um, step, which is the top voice. Mm-hmm. And that's basically um, for anybody who is sort of active in LinkedIn, sharing their thoughts, engaging in discussions. There's these sort of AI generated articles that use actually generative AI like ChatGPT to create like these sort of mock-up articles uh, that have these sort of sections. So it's always like a post written by AI and divided into sections. And then uh, one day I was basically, I got a LinkedIn notification that, hey, you have been selected to write for one of these articles. I was like, okay, what is this? And then I went to check and it was something about um, Marketing, marketing attribution. So I'm like, okay, I can write about that. And yeah. then I started writing about it. I wrote some other articles. So basically, it's a written article, and then you comment on the sections. So you can challenge the AI generated stuff and provide again real life examples. So it's I I think it's like a really innovative way of using AI and sort of structuring thoughts and getting the community engaged. So if if you do get that sort of a like notification. Well, yeah, I, I, I did. I, I actually been having them for months, but I've just been ignoring them because uh, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't, well, I wasn't sure what they were about. And I was also wondering if it would be do, too generic, but now I can see there's there's a clear uh, benefit you, to filling in those answers. You, you can actually click it and check the other articles. And I mean, for sure you could, you, you could like ace, for example, segmentation and personalization and these kind of areas. But yeah. yeah, I'll definitely look at it. Yeah, I've been, I've been, um, I guess, nominated to write or answer on marketing automation topics and then a variety of other topics. So uh, I'll have to check it out. Thanks. Thanks for the tip. That's cool. Well, let's uh, wheel the conversation back to um, getting back from marketing cloud, uh, from LinkedIn to marketing cloud, rather. Apologies. Um, yeah. You've been in that field for a while. What was your most interesting project so far, Timo? Well, first thing, I still here, I've been working with both the sort of OG SFMC, so marketing cloud or marketing cloud engagement, I guess it's called, and mm-hmm. also account engagement, which is part of for OG players like myself. So I still hear, and this is also for people who work at Salesforce, maybe not the uh, specific account executives that deal with this, but they sometimes say Pardot is for B2B and Marketing Cloud is for B2C. And that's not really the case. I've worked with uh, Pardot users who are uh, like consumer companies or selling directly to consumer and the other way around. And that's actually one of the interesting cases for me was working with one of these sort of multinational manufacturing companies that was using marketing cloud. So like, okay, so you're selling like 100,000 multi-million dollar projects and you have lead management and you have complex sales processes, but you're still using marketing cloud. So what what's the what's the idea here? And basically, it was that uh, their business was quite transactional. They were using multiple channels. They were using marketing cloud advertising to great degree, and so they they were getting the benefits. And and really, I see also that the marketing cloud really plays well if you if you're really heavily invested in service. In my mind, it actually works better with service cloud than sales cloud. Because you can create the cases, you can do interactive emails that update case statuses and and whatnot. So Journey Builder and Service Cloud are really nice pals, so to speak. So I think mm-hmm. uh, that was a really interesting case. And 
Um, <laughs> well, what made it also a bit interesting was that uh, they sort of weren't satisfied with what was available sort of out of the box. So they wanted to set up their own lead scoring with Marketing Cloud, which was quite interesting. Like it, <laughs> that's that's one of the sort of uh, things that isn't that easy to set up with uh, Marketing Cloud by default, yeah. Did their lead scoring in Marketing Cloud include website data? Because that's where usually I find there's a bottleneck. You you typically don't want to store your web tracking data in Marketing Cloud because it will make your data extensions explode. Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely. I mean, if you use Data Cloud, it's a different story. You can use calculated uh, insights for that, and it's it's perfectly viable for doing lead scoring. But I really don't recommend uh, mm -hmm. doing complex lead scoring. And also, I challenge the idea of lead scoring altogether. I mean, it's basically boiling down very complex behavior into a single score. And it's the exact same reason why I hate NPS, for that matter. So trying to sort of use a single score to explain multitude of behaviors and actions, is, it's, I think it's the wrong way to go. And what you can do with data extensions is actually to take like... Um, sort of key events from the website, key sort of milestones that you've right. identified when doing a customer journey map, that these are the points where you have to do something like a service person needs to contact them proactively or a salesperson needs to jump on the wagon and, and contact the customer. So that's, I would say it's, it's a much more effective way and Based on feedback I've received and customers who've used lead scoring, the usual case is that the sales is quite satisfied with leads that come through contact forms, but not that satisfied with lead scoring leads because, you know, it doesn't mean anything anymore. If there's mm -hmm. like 50 activities that are totally in, like unconnected to each other, it's like, what does it mean anymore? Like if you have 500 score or 600 score what what does it mean it's well that, yeah. that's that's an interesting topic because it's actually something we have implemented in our business as well um i have heard very few success stories from companies regardless of their tech stack introducing lead scoring um mm. i think there's a few thoughts i have on this subject um it can it can actually be useful especially the b2b context to come up with some kind of account scoring to help prioritize activities for sales, but more for the outbound motion, not even necessarily for the inbound motion, just to have an mm. idea of what's happening at a certain account. But um, in our case, I can, tell, I can tell a bit about how we have configured lead scoring because you see in our business, um, other than referrals via partners and then the app exchange and Salesforce and just doing outbound ourselves, we do of course have a number of um, inbound. Uh, in fact, it's a very important channel for us. Um, and mm. we get all through eBooks, through webinars and of course our um, deselect search application, the free app uh, to search stuff in Marketing Club. This is a very important region for us too. But uh, what we have learned is that if we get um, leads from some of these channels like um, eBooks or uh, deselect search, uh, we call them soft leads as opposed to hard mm -hmm. leads. Hard leads are yeah. people who really ask for a reaction like a contact form, like mm -hmm. a demo request. The soft leads yeah. are often not ready to be to be nurtured, and sometimes there are. Um, sometimes we would prefer sales to focus on a certain target list that we have rather than those soft leads. So that's where we introduced a lead score. But I think the the main thing with the lead score is it's super abstract. So you have a lot of you can have if you're not careful, you can have endless discussions about what should mm -hmm. the model be. And then once the model is implemented, there's also you're debating basically: do we give five points or ten points? It's like ah. Who knows? Yeah. And, totally what you should be doing is, and, and what you should really do, I feel, is just um, do do go with good feeling initially, but but don't try to get the perfect model. And then based on mm. what's actually happening, often uh, uh, look back at the model. So in our case, I think our model was implemented six months ago. For us, it's it's now is really a time to to look back and see if it's um, been useful. Um, but I would agree, it's challenging to really pull off. And usually, you know, there's another thing, lead scoring is, is a way to prioritize which leads you should reach out to. I think most companies don't have the luxury of having too many leads to reach out to. 
No, and there's actually a better way to do that. And that's also taking a sort of a page out of the Pardot data model. Uh, I don't know if you know, but Pardot also has this thing called grading and profiles. Oh, yeah. So grading, yeah. So yeah. That, that's, that's a similar topic. So instead of customer actions sort of deciding who is sort of engaged and who is not, grading is about you as a company representative defining what is the ideal customer, what is the grade A customer, what is not. And sure, that may sound like horrible, like division of the customer, but that's actually a great way to focus salespeople's time on the right people, mm -hmm. right uh, customers, because no customer either wants to get like contacted unnecessarily. So if they are not sort of a target customer for your product then like it's a waste of both parties time i guess yeah absolutely and and this this too is, is exactly that we as a b2b company have done recently so we did um we did an icp refresh so uh for those who don't know that's an ideal customer profile um so that's at the account level in our case that's really and, fancy though a lot of customers or companies don't do that kind of Thing. Yeah, but we we have to pick our pick our battles. I mean, yeah, we we want to be hyper focused, and uh, we know that our ICP obviously it's people use Salesforce Marketing Cloud. Um, it can be upper mid market or enterprise, lower mid market SMB. SMB you don't even really have in SFMC, but um, and then there's a few industries like uh, well, unless you're a non-profit. Well, but that's not an SMB, but smaller sort of organizations. Yeah. yeah. And we do serve nonprofits, but those are typically much larger ones. Um, I, I wouldn't necessarily call them our ICP today, although we do serve a number of really nice logos there. But our ICPs will be more like um, insurance, banking, telecommunications. We see a growing number in RCG. And then a really good one for us. Oh, and automotive. And then and, and a really interesting one, I think, is higher education. I'm always surprised mm -hmm. how many higher education clients we have. We have uh, we did a press release with um, Cornell a while ago. So anyway... Um, I don't want to babble too much about our stuff, but um, I, I just like that you pointed out the grading system in part of it because I do think that being really clear about your ICP is really important. And then now you can go back to your database and indicate what we did is we we call those accounts target accounts. And uh, pretty much all our outbound focus uh, uh, sits with those. Now, um, going back to, to your project, so you said the interesting thing about this customer was it was a manufacturing company, but they were B2B, and regardless of that, they they were using Marketing Cloud plus Service Cloud. Were there other things in that project that stood out? You said something about them doing a lot of custom work. Well, not that much. I mean, this was just like to answer your question. Uh, honestly, it's been a couple of years so uh, since I worked worked with that customer, so I don't know what direction they have gone to. But I uh, nowadays, if I were to recommend like a solution, I would definitely see them as a sort of top candidate for, for data cloud, uh, given their complexity of the process and, and uh, all the sort of custom, custom metrics they were using. So like building these sort of uh, um, what they're called, like uh, customer lifetime value scores and, and so on. So I, I think uh, that's really helpful uh, to, I, I think you also uh, talked about like uh, providing personalization and providing uh, data other than what you use for segmentation. So I think those kind of uh, tidbits of insight and data are, are really helpful when you're doing sort of super targeted or hyper targeted advertising and marketing. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. I think it makes all the difference. And it's also much more, uh, especially in today's market, not, not, uh, well, it's also very important today's market is that it's all capital efficient and sustainable. Uh, so mm. being hyper targeted forces you to spend your money much more carefully talking about, um, you know, getting enough bang for your buck, so to speak. Um, and it's I, not a, I know... only about money. It's about burning through your uh, subscriber lists also. Oh, <laughs> you yeah. You don't want no, to people to unsubscribe either. Absolutely. And not just unsubscribe, because um, it's my experience working with clients. The majority of clients, they don't really have unsubscribe issues anymore. I, most unsubscribe 
uh, rates seem to be between one and two percent, and I think that's because there's been such a shift towards towards um, um, only doing consent-based marketing, which is a great yeah. positive trend for consumers all alike, and I'm, I'm happy it's happening. But the other thing that now I see people are really underestimating is the uh, what we call unengaged subscribers. So that is to say, mm -hmm. subscribers who are just never opening. And so marketers sometimes get very happy about clearly what are vanity metrics like, oh, we've done a million cents. Yeah, but I mean, how are people actually engaging? So um, a lot of our work and, and uh, product uh, roadmap is more geared towards uh, audience health and um, than just even avoiding unsubscribes. But, but you're totally right. Um, and that's even worse in B2B, I would say. Like uh, if the mail drops to your uh, business email, uh, even though if you are subscribed to get like some kind of a goodie, like, uh, I don't know, attending a webinar or like a white paper, you're probably not going to be engaged with that company for, uh, uh, after a few months. No, that's, that's but right. Still no. people don't even care enough to click the unsubscribe button. So they will just, uh, use automated rules on the mailbox to send it to junk or something like that. That also happens. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm not in that category. I, I, I hit the spam button very fast, especially when I get it. And this, you have more in the U S and in Europe, the moment you're at a certain event or they find your email address, they put you on mailing lists without an opt-in for me. That's an instant spam notification. Thank God for GDPR. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So you, you've also worked in, um, pre-sale support. Uh, I take it. Um, this is maybe a bit more of a tricky question, but in your experience, depending on what you mean by that, but yeah. <laughs> well, let me let me put it this way: If you position marketing cloud to a customer, whether in the past or yeah. these days, how do you try to make a case for ROI? How do you think about uh, convincing uh, stakeholders who are considering buying Salesforce Marketing Cloud that the ROI will be there? Mm. That's that's actually a really good and difficult question. Uh, when I think about like the sales cases I've been involved in with uh, with customers thinking, for example, between different options, uh, they basically done usually the main business case beforehand. They have a budget in mind. So we never actually or very rarely do we get like the numbers from the customer. They're expecting or the client are expecting us to provide some kind of a um, solution and uh, proposal on what would be the sort of benefits versus costs. Uh, how I sort of like to uh, go about it is actually uh, discussing the sort of cost of doing nothing versus fixing the issues with marketing cloud. So first identifying like what is wrong with the current setup and what are the sort of things that marketing cloud could help you with? And I think this exercise is also really important sort of a sanity check, because if, if there's no problems with the existing setup, don't go with marketing cloud. It is a very mature tool. It's, it's very uh, sort of high and steep learning curve. That said, it's also one of the most customizable and extendable products, but I mean, you're not going to hear that about from Salesforce because they're the vendor, but me as a consultant, I have to be there to implement it, to support the customer. So I want to make sure that uh, they're getting the product that is the right fit for them as well. No, that's absolutely true. And you're there, of course, to act as that um, trusted party who can offer some objectivity. And especially because you've been in marketing, that's there. Um, you talk about the cost of doing nothing and then the strength of marketing cloud being highly customizable, which by the way, I totally agree. I think that's, that's the wonderful thing about the platform. Um, are there patterns that you see amongst customers that have a cost of doing nothing for certain cases where marketing cloud can really bring a lot of added value? I think it's all about uh, multi-channel or omni-channel, whichever you prefer. I think that's that's the main issue. Um, mainly, it's about, about well advertising. Usually, like if we talk about enterprise level customers, they almost always get like advertising, marketing cloud advertising included because I think it's one of the better uh, sort of components of marketing cloud. 
and and also like SMS, uh, mobile mobile applications, all of these chat platforms, uh, especially SMS. We sometimes underestimate the power of text messages, but it's really powerful tool. Except especially like those kind of industries that you mentioned, insurance, um, telecom for sure, entertainment industry, media, uh, just to mention a few. And really Marketing Cloud has some really good sort of industry specific applications and sort of add-ons like personalization. Uh, that's really great for uh, e-commerce and also telecom and media companies, I think. And here we can see like there's for sure, at least if you work in certain or these certain industries, you can say that uh, if you use any other sort of generic multi-channel marketing platform, you, you're not getting these benefits. You're not getting them right. if you use Adobe campaign or uh, I don't know, some, some other sort of uh, multi-channel tool. So that's really interesting. Um, I, I love Europe, but I will say now living in the US, I, I noticed that the marketing maturity in this country is very high. And so yeah. one of the things you see a lot here is is all of uh, SMS campaigns. I feel that's really something that in Europe marketers can pick up and learn from. And I think the trust is much higher in the SMS channel. I mean, and, and also the engagement. Uh, okay, this goes back to analytics, which also we sort of touch upon, but you don't get as much data from uh, from sending SMS, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't work. And you have to be more creative about getting the data points, like for example, using dedicated links. This, this one actually goes way back, like how to do marketing attribution, like old school style. There was this uh, guy called Hopkins. What was his first name? Claude Hopkins, who invented marketing attribution uh in in the us i guess uh and he he had like these sort of different billboards or versions of billboards with different uh phone numbers so you'd call a different phone number uh, phone number and they were able to pick up which advertisements were more effective mm -hmm. and i think these kind of guerrilla tactics work really well with uh, sms attribution but you have to be more creative that's that's true but uh if you can measure the effectiveness of sms campaigns uh for sure you should go for it i think mm. people use it uh too sparsely that doesn't mean that you want to go overboard but it's it's uh definitely one one of those like um sort of special weapons in your arsenal that you should put to use well, and email metrics are getting less accurate with uh, Apple restricting the information that we get back. Yeah, I mean, Apple is uh, at least the iOS um, method of basically logging everything as opened is basically causing havoc on open rates. So I wouldn't use that as a metric anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the other thing, though, that came to mind is that I do think attribution can be very challenging and misleading uh, at worst um and i think it can be both in b2c or b2b but say in b2b we may for instance have someone come to our website via google and we might say oh this is natural search right mm -hmm. but maybe in effect what happened was that um we have a great relationship with a partner like yourself and maybe you mentioned <laughs> our product to a customer at a conference and then they googled us but now you know the effort of building a relationship with a trusted partner is not being recognized but if you know just if you just magnify that um event across many different occurrences you might think oh you know natural search is the thing we have to double down on and i'm not saying we, we shouldn't like as a company double down on natural search i think that's a great channel but i think you get the point so what are what are your thoughts yeah. on there what are the limitations of attribution? Oh, this is, I think you opened the Pandora's box. It's one of my favorite <laughs> topics, uh, marketing attribution. I think um, people sometimes have a very limited way of looking at attribution. And a lot of companies think of it as a sort of um, this or that kind of conversation. So you have to use one or the other like model 
are you using first touch, last touch, or even at, uh, even uh, distribution or custom model, whatever are you using? My advice is use them all, but there's the sort of a perspective kind of difference. So if you use several attribution models side by side, what you get is a dashboard where you can actually uh, sort campaigns based on um, key lenses. And you can use these attribution models as a way to amplify their effect uh, in the sort of stages of the customer lifecycle or, or the sort of lead pipeline, so to speak. So for example, if you use um, First Touch, you amplify the channels or the campaigns that uh, uh, are very good at sort of um, uh, converting or getting people to sign up for something and creating like um, subscribers for your data for, for marketing cloud. And vice versa, if you sort of use a model called like um, last touch attribution, what you get is like amplification on pre-sales campaigns or campaigns that are really good at sort of uh, getting those last sort of closing arguments uh, before the sale. And once you have this sort of a dashboard that includes them all and you name them sort of prescriptively or describe descriptively, uh, as a marketer, you can easily identify like which campaigns are really good at this, which campaigns are really good at that and so on. And, and when you have these sort of different lenses, you get a more holistic picture. So I, I sort of like that kind of approach where you have several different attribution models working side by side. Well, and then when you do get out of intelligence and you're starting to think about your next program, campaign planning, it's more about, okay, what are the channels I need to optimize at which mm. step of the journey as opposed to what, what channel do I need to optimize? And that's the end of the question, right? It's more about what are different steps that it takes to convert a customer. Mm. But it's it's good to think of the sort of different roles for the different channels. So you're not sort of accidentally trying to achieve something from the website that it's not sort of meant for. And mm -hmm. it's also good to validate those roles. Because sometimes we, and a lot of times, even marketers, we, we say that we're masters of customer insight. But uh, there was this one case actually in real time, uh, real life, I was working with uh, this glazing company. They basically sold glazing to uh, uh, patios and, and apartments and so on. And what they found out was that people behave very weirdly. They don't sort of follow the Rians model for, for their sort of purchase. So what they usually did, and they did like extensive research on this, at least in Finland, they went like straight to the pricing page. Like that was the first thing that they went to to check and qualify that is this like even in our budget range. So no mm -hmm. inspirational content, no like comparison content and that like uh, things like that. So they wanted to validate it first and then they went to check the inspirational content. So we sometimes sort of think of it as a straightforward sort of funnel that you go from the sort of inspirational coffee content to the sort of hard content uh, that right. gets you. Yeah, you're thinking about uh, models like IDA or top of funnel, middle of funnel, bottom of funnel, but in reality, yeah. people don't always follow that, that track, right? Yeah, so if you use one of those, it's perfectly fine. And it's a great way to model the different sort of activities along the customer journey, but please validate it first. And it makes much more sense to use a custom model that actually follows what your customers are actually doing. And it's not right. impossible to do. I mean, this wasn't like a super mature company. They were doing the right kind of things, uh, but they were still maturing in certain other aspects. So if they can do it, I think you can do it as well. Well, and, and arguably maybe those models are better suited to 
think about your overall campaign strategy and content strategy a little bit less so for systems. This is something that I, I, I actually started marketing automation with Pardot. Uh, should I mention that earlier? Not with, not with Marketing Cloud. So I remember doing part of the, uh, part of the implementation where people had this um, this kind of model in mind. But um, you, you, I think as a consultant, you don't have to pop the bubble and make the customer aware that, well, in reality, your customer is not going to flow through this funnel logically. People will jump straight mm -hmm. to a contact form. People will go immediately to the pricing page before the quote unquote inspirational content, as you've put it. Yeah. yeah. Um, super interesting. Uh, maybe one other thing that I was wondering about, Tim, if you've already tried um, tried it at Dreamforce and many other of the recent Salesforce conferences, there's a lot of talk about WhatsApp and their partnership with WhatsApp. Um, I, this is one of the things that's less common in the US where I think the US can actually learn from Europe. Um, but um, WhatsApp is huge in most of the world. Have you already looked into the functionality for Marketing Cloud by any chance? I don't know. Like I've, This is one of the uh, aspects where I'm probably a bit conservative or old-fashioned. But I sort of don't feel, at least like how we use WhatsApp in the Nordics, it's a very interpersonal channel. Mm -hmm. I haven't ever received any advertisement for from WhatsApp. And this is actually different from uh, sort of competitors like Line, for example. I don't know if you know Line. Uh, they use it in Asia a lot. Yeah. It, like it's huge in Korea and huge in uh, Japan. When I was there for exchange studies, and they were, this was like over 10 years ago, uh, we were using Line for communicating, and I'm still using it with uh, old buddies from exchange. And um, there you actually run into a lot of like advertisement. For, but for some reason, I think WhatsApp is still largely untouched by that. Uh, I don't know why it is, but it's like it's basically replaced text messages, at, at least in, in the Nordics. A lot of people have like family chats there. And I, I, I sort of feel that that's one of the places where advertisement would be a bit out of place. But I'd love to see like how that actually works, if it can be monetized. I'm sure there's like good case studies. Yeah. Or well, what about transactions? It depends on the market. And yeah. Or, or more for transactional communications, because I feel also with text message. Advertising and text messages is still very intrusive. I may be projecting my own sentiment here, but um, I don't mind getting notifications about, I don't know, doctor reminders via text message. And with WhatsApp, mm. the only use case I've seen so far is I use Wise for my banking because I still travel countries a lot. Um, and uh, with Wise, you actually have an option to get your password reset via WhatsApp rather than your phone number, which is really useful if you have multiple phone numbers and only one WhatsApp number. Mm. Yeah. Um, another thing that I was um, wondering about, maybe while we're talking about new stuff that we see at Dreamforce, AI is constantly being flung around right now. What do you think about Salesforce's continued promise on AI? What do you see in general amongst your customers? And what does it mean to you personally? Well, personally, I can start with that. I mean... Uh... Um, it's it's brought uh, a lot of stuff to learn because customers are asking about it constantly. Uh, there's um, RFPs or requests for proposals and information coming in, quotations and stuff that I'm working on uh, related to especially generative AI. Uh, this is something I want to say like, uh, basically buffing my own com company or employ employer uh, about it that uh, Capgemini actually has been working with generative AI for past eight years. So that's actually made it a lot easier for me. There's good material uh, available from from the company side, from my employer can side. Tell, so Can you tell us more about that? Because you say Capgemini has already been working with AI for eight years. Generative Most AI. Generative AI even. Can you yeah. tell us a bit more about that, about that history? So, uh, yeah, uh, we have this uh, sort of business area called uh, data and insights. So uh, those guys have been actually setting up these uh, generative AI models based on 
foundational models available and, and also like uh, using sort of company specific data. And that's been going on for, uh, for a lot longer than what's uh, chat GPT and, and everything that came, came out like a year ago. So we've been doing that for a lot of companies and um, basically there's been generative AI incorporated in um, different kinds of platforms and uh, companies have been using it in-house, but it's not been sort of uh, broad common knowledge prior to uh, chat GPT entering the market. So we were basically those kind of hipsters. So we were in the <laughs> gen, gen AI market even before it was cool, <laughs> so to speak. But yeah. uh, uh, coming back to your original question, how it sort of impacts the uh, sort of overall ecosystem and how it sort of impacts people's daily life. I think, uh, I don't know if you know Amara's law, so. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we tend to sort of overestimate the short term effects mm -hmm. of technology and underestimate the effect in the long run. So yeah. I think that sort of is, is the key point here. So most likely we won't notice it, uh, in our daily life because it happens very gradually, but if we sort of take a snapshot of uh, how work is today and and come back to it like 10 years after uh, afterwards. Uh, it might be something similar to thinking back like 10 years ago, like how right. we were using websites. They were not responsive. So going with a mobile phone to a website 10 years ago, sort of when you think of those scenarios, like, oh, oh it, it wasn't possible that then, and, and you had to right. do all kinds of uh, different things. You have to do this all the time with the uh, touch screens. It was annoying. So um, I think um, most likely um, we'll see a T-shaped model in marketing organizations. So we'll see these sort of AI specialists, very similar to what we have with analytics. So it's basically a new specialization. So we'll have uh, AI marketers enter the uh, job market, but everybody should learn the basics. And by basics, I mean like um, similar to everybody knowing like the basics of uh, marketing analytics, marketing attribution, basics of data privacy and data protection. So also the basics of how generative AI models function. What is generative AI versus like uh, these sort of uh, other sort of machine learning models? How are they different? How do you use different AI methods and so on? So you don't have to know how to build one, but you know, you need to know uh, sort of what they're meant for, uh, how they're using the data and sort of what you can expect in terms of use cases and so on. I think it was in a McKinsey study where they wrote that um, people will not necessarily lose jobs directly to generative AI, but people who don't have AI skills will be losing jobs to people who do have AI skills. And that's yeah. going to be the dichotomy. Yeah, I'm going to be a bit harsher here. And I'm actually going to point out that uh, there are certain kinds of I would say work mentalities that are at risk. So if you're doing repetitive work, you're not sort of providing insight and you're not challenging uh, the sort of work order that you're presented with. Uh, those are really in the risk of losing their jobs, not necessarily to AI, but uh, maybe even some process automation. Well, and, and I, I keep discovering by myself jobs that I didn't even consider being at risk first um, or, or at least partially at risk. So for instance, uh, just the other day, I asked ChatGPT to put together a new training schedule where in the past I might've gone to a trainer or a dietitian to help with stuff like that. And now like actually I have all the information at my fingertips. I mean, arguably you can even find on the internet yourself, but now it's even composed, personalized. It's so much faster. Um, so that's also a sort of, interesting how we keep finding new ways um 
where this changes. Talking about change, uh, as a somewhat last topic, maybe I want to talk about change management. I'm sure in, yeah. in your consulting work, you've dealt with plenty of that. You've been on both sides. I'd love to hear from you. What are your, what are the most common change management topics that arise and how do you mitigate them? Well, I would say that it, I wish it would arise. So it's, it's like something that you never hear as a consultant. Like, mm-hmm. how would you approach this change management problem? <laughs> that, that never happens. So it's, right. it's one of those kind of things that as a consultant, you have to develop scent for that. So you're like, I'm sniffing around and then you can like, okay, this is actually a bigger thing. We're not talking about data issues. We're not talking about um, process issues or tech issues. A lot of the times, and this comes back to the very first question, I guess, what you said about like ROI. So that might actually be the root cause of not being able to use the technology, that there's simply a miscommunication between, for example, IT and marketing. IT is seen as a bottleneck uh, where you have to get approval for using data. Or maybe you need specialists from IT to actually use the data. It's too difficult to utilize. And this is where, I guess, the select comes comes along that you can uh, empower yeah. marketers to use. Yeah. So I think like uh, that's that's really at the core of change management. I think empowering people to do their jobs better and basically framing change as well it's it's corny to say that change is a possibility every change is a possibility it's not a threat but uh you really have to sort of put yourself in that other person's shoes identify what are the pain points in their current uh in the current project or uh, current process and think how the change could actually improve that but also you cannot sort of look at the change that you're sort of trying to implement as purely a positive change. Mm-hmm. It's good to be realistic. And I think especially in the sort of rough times that we live in, people losing their jobs, being laid off and everything, it's very important to show compassion when doing these kind of projects and really being honest uh, that this this might actually cause some issues and 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 there might be some sort of nasty consequences with this change, but we're trying to deal with them and we're trying to involve people to make uh, or mitigate those kind of uh, things. Which is interesting because what you've now said is point A is that it seems like few customers realize or um, you know maybe they realize change will be happening but they don't make it a topic to be addressed whereas the a big part of of dealing with change is actually acknowledging the challenges that will happen and and dealing with them um would you agree with that yeah i mean for some reason i don't know if it's it's a local peculiarity but at least here it seems that uh, it's easier to find money for a tech project than a sort of strategy or a cons- sort of like a change project. So, and, and what I is mean, interesting is that I've I've seen studies that most IT projects fail because of either lack of executive buy-in or um, uh, lack of user adoption. And so, if you think about how companies spend millions on digital transformation, but then they don't invest anything or very little in training and change management and organization restructure. You know, you kind of scratch your head and wonder, come on, this should, this should, this is avoidable. Um, I, I keep saying, and this is, you know, coming from a tech entrepreneur, I keep saying that the biggest issues in MarTech and marketing operations are usually organizational. They're not technology-based. Yeah, exactly. And that's what we keep saying. And sometimes it works. And usually that's even a winning strategy. So the consultant that uh, manages or the vendor that manages to outline this in a sort of um, clearest possible way, but also saying that it's in the realm of possibility. So we don't, we don't either, or like 
we want to stress that uh, change is difficult and needs to be taken on head on as a challenge, but we also want to stress that change is possible. So sometimes us consultants, we sort of focus on the negative and focus on the challenges too much. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where you sort of identify the sort of uh, professional and uh, sort of really expert consultant who can uh, challenge you, identify sort of um, these sort of root causes or root issues that are causing, really causing the problem, but also to present solutions. Absolutely. I think that is very sound advice, the the role that a consultant can play in, in managing change, but also basically making customers aware of the opportunity it can present. Um, before I let yep. you go, Timo, um, if I can ask you for some other parting advice, typically I ask um, you know, guests on the show, um, what advice would you give to newcomers to the marketing cloud ecosystem? But you, with your architect background, I would ask a slightly different question. Um, for yep. people who are interested in becoming an architect eventually, what would be your advice to them? Uh, wow, that's a, that's a difficult question since I'm pretty new to architecture myself, but I would say um, exploring different roles. I mean, best architects I've met have a very generalist background. And I think curiosity is really important in that sort of uh, area. So if if possible and whenever possible, try sales, try developer work, try front-end work, try designer work, uh, do service design workshops, do trainings, do mentoring. So whatever sort of new things you can figure out and try and see how that works, it all helps when you're an architect because architects are like all architects are generalist in, in some way, I think. So, so that, that's my advice. So explore, be curious and uh, spread out, become a generalist. And that's really helpful when you actually work as an architect. I think that is wonderful advice to become an architect. I think that's just also great life's advice. Um, Timo, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah. It was a pleasure really talking with you. Yeah, thanks, Anthony. And uh, if you ever want to chat about these topics again, I'm, uh, I'm here for you. And just feel free to reach out whenever. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for watching Heroes of Marketing Cloud. I hope you enjoyed the show. Don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date about future interviews with fellow marketing champions.